Today's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by the American Heart Association, which is urging lawmakers to save physical education. The average school gets just $764 every year for phys ed. Go to heart.org, let them play to learn more and take action. This episode of The Weeds is also brought to you by Spotless, a new series from Esquire Network, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Learn more about Spotless by downloading Coming Clean, a roundtable podcast that goes behind the scenes of TV's best dark dramas, and tune into the Spotless series premiere November 14th at 10 p.m., 9 p.m. Central, on Esquire Network. I'm Kenzie Wilbur, host of the Burnt Toast podcast, and on every episode, I'm joined by the most interesting people in the food world. Sometimes to talk about slowing down in the kitchen. To really stand for a minute over the stove when those onions are caramelizing in butter and just say, oh God, this is one of the grace moments of the day. And sometimes we're in the kitchen ourselves. The meatloaf is out of the oven and something bad happens to it. It's a podcast for people who never stop wondering about food. Subscribe to Burnt Toast, a podcast from Food 52 on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. I almost didn't graduate high school. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as usual is my colleague Sarah Cliff. And we also have today a special guest star, Fox's own Dylan Matthews, sitting in for Ezra Klein. Welcome to the show, Dylan. Glad to be here. It's an honor. We've got a, a great episode going. We've got a, a great white paper. We're going to talk a little bit about a new Republican debate, but something a, a lot of readers have, have written in to, to ask us about, and you can do that at weeds at vox.com, by the way, is the idea of a, a basic income. And we've been waiting to discuss it on a show because we knew at some point we were going to need a substitute host, and, and we wanted to bring Dylan on to talk about basic income. He's a big star in the, in the basic income world. Huge in the basic income world, if the you, biggest. If you go to the website, basicincome.org, you will find a real compendium of Dylan's thoughts on this subject. But you can also not go to the website because you can just listen to this podcast and ideally rate us on iTunes. Or read on Vox.com, Dylan's greatest hits on basic income. Sure. And share the articles on Facebook. That's the most, it doesn't really matter what you read, (laughs) just what you share. So Dylan, I mean, can you tell us, I mean, what, what is a basic income? So uh, basic income is a uh, government benefit that would provide everyone in a populace with a set check every year or every month, regardless of anything, just for the sake of being alive. You know, most countries have some kind of program for elderly people, right, where the government sends you a check every month and it doesn't really matter, you know, if you need it. I had one set of grandparents who... They were pretty rich. Uh, my grandpa founded a business. He was doing well, but the government sent him a check anyway. Or you could be like super poor and I don't know, get your money and spend it on heroin and you know wh- sure. whatever you want to do as long as you're old. Right. So it's, it's sort of like that, and and the way that that works in various countries varies. In the U.S., we sort of have this this scheme where we want to say that Social Security is related to how much money you made, and so there's not really a minimum, and, and it varies with with your earnings. But it's sort of similar to that idea, and and the idea being you know. We have social security in place so that people don't fall into poverty when they're when they're elderly, and that same principle should apply for the rest of people's lives. And now, is there any place uh, where you you have this idea in effect? I mean, do any governments just sort of give everyone? I don't know what it would be, a few hundred bucks a month. Not really. There there are some sort of limited programs that are sort of like this. So the closest thing in the United States is Alaska has this thing called the permanent fund where oil companies pay dividends into this trust. The trust, based on the variations in their investments, makes a payment out to every Alaskan every year, regardless of if they're working or if they're poor or if they're rich. I think last year it was about $2,000 per person. So a family of four would get $8,000 from the government in Alaska. But the purest version of the idea at a national scale, there isn't a lot of precedent for. So one of the things I find most interesting about this is it seems like one, like a policy that seems like very implausible in the United States, right? It doesn't seem like it's coming. Or, like you've talked about, I, I've read your writing on like various places where it's gotten support, but it like seems like to most people think it's like just a little nutty, but it also has this like wide kind of cross political 
base of support where you have a liberal case for it, you have a conservative case for it, where the liberal case, I think it was a little more obvious to me that, you know, we want to end poverty and this is a way to end poverty. You can just give everyone money. And then the conservative case seems to be a lot about cutting back on government bureaucracy and you could get rid of Medicare and food stamps and all this different bureaucracy we've created to deliver benefits. And that's one of the things I find most interesting about the basic income debate is just the way it cuts across a lot of different ideologies. And you have this kind of weird coalition behind it. But it also seems like even with this like coalition, completely implausible, they're going to have a basic income anytime soon. Right. And, and partly because the case is sort of differ in how you would get there. So Charles Murray, the author of The Bell Curve, whose conservative credentials are fairly beyond reproach, supports a basic income of $10,000. But he supports it precisely because he does not like Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid and would want to cut basically all of those in, in the process of funding it. Whereas I know a lot of Marxists who like <laughs> basic income who are not super enthused about cutting government health care programs or education or, or the like as a way of paying for it. So, yeah, I think it's definitely an uphill battle. And it's it's definitely not something that mainstream politicians in a lot of places have, have signed on for. But it was mainstream as recently as about four decades ago, uh, not in sort of the purest, you know, all out form, but... Richard Nixon actually passed a version of it through the House in 1971 that was a version known as a negative income tax, where everyone gets a set amount of money, but it phases out as you make more money, which is a way of making the program cheaper. So if you're really rich, you wouldn't get anything, but everyone is in theory eligible for it. But this is one of the things that makes this a good sort of podcast subject, and in many ways to me, a, a difficult like question to get in my inbox, because there's this idea of a basic income, but it actually exists in forms that are not just is different, but in a lot of ways, contradictory, right? So one idea, a conservative, particularly a libertarian version, is, look, we have all these government programs. The government programs do lots of stuff, right? So some of them give subsidized health insurance to poor people. Others of them operate little buildings where they store books and you can come borrow them, right? We pay bus drivers to cruise around town. And, and there's a view that's like, instead of doing all of that stuff, we could just scrap it, however much money that was, we could hand it out to people. And then we just like wouldn't have a government doing things. And then there's a really a diametrically opposed view, right, which is that we, in addition to all of the state institutions that we have, need to be providing people with the opportunity to just say no to working. Right. To create a sort of an outside option to the labor market. And, you know, that's a it's not just like a difference in nuance, but it's like it's the reverse. And then you have the Nixon era version of it, which is basically the case for it's a form of what we used to call welfare. Right. Which is right. just to say, look, we need cash assistance to poor people. And then we have a technical question about how to orchestrate it so that we're not wasting a lot of money on people who aren't poor while also not phasing it out so hard to leave them out. And. They all sort of lead to the same idea of cash grants going to people as an entitlement, but they're motivated by very different visions of what what we want society to look like. Right, right. Charles Murray, of course, sort of cut his teeth as a welfare critic and is, is very concerned about these layabouts on their welfare checks and whatever. And the sort of left-wingers who look at a basic income and say, this is a way for people to go surf if they want to, and that's fine in our conception of society, it's fairly diametrically opposed. And so one issue of that, I think, is a difference in estimate of how the politics of the basic income would play out. Because at least my suspicion about Charles Murray, I mean, I can't read his mind, sure. but is the idea is that, you know, if you scrap all these programs, if you eliminate the pretense that the government is educating people and improving their health, and you just bring it down to the bare minimum, the government is giving them money, then if it turns out that lots of people are taking that money and using it to go surf instead of working, you have a strong political support for just cranking the program down. Because right now, you know, if someone proposes cutting Medicaid, if someone proposes cutting public education, right, you get all these like sob stories because it's like it's good to take care of sick people, right? But to the extent that uh, the case for just giving people money is like, well, then they can do what they want. It's in some ways like a tougher argument. Whereas the left wing version of this is like, well, Social Security is a super popular program, right? One thing the government uh, that 
Republican politicians have a really hard time doing is reducing spending on these broad entitlement programs because it isn't just something for the poor. So if everybody was getting this check, you know, and you see it in Alaska, right? right. I mean, the the permanent fund is a sort of oddly designed policy. It's very crude. It's very simplistic. It's not designed to achieve anything in particular other than maybe encourage people to live in a frozen hellscape. <laughs> but it's very popular. Like uh, yeah. Alaskans really like it. They, it was they... introduced by a Republican governor. Sarah Palin loves it. Right. <laughs> and I think it's a it's a little hard to know like who is right about that, right? Because you could see it right with Social Security. There's a an alternate reality in which someone is standing up there on the debate stage being like, the government is running a multi-billion dollar program so these lazy oldsters can like sit around golfing when they should be working. Right. But, but of the course, lazy nobody oldsters are that. big voters. So. Yeah, I mean, they vote, but also they're considered sympathetic, right. Right? right? The presumption is that it's okay to, if you have worked for a while... And if you're in your 60s and have gray hair and are a sort of respectable sort of person, to just stop working. Right. It's okay to be like a lazy oldster because you've like worked for all that time. But you, I want to circle back to one thing you're talking about, this like idea of like going off and surfing because now you have basic income. Because one of the things I've been surprised at looking at the research is the relatively small effect. You know, it's, Dylan can probably speak to the specific experiments, but that you actually don't see as big of an effect on employment as I would have expected. And you see these kind of debates playing out elsewhere. Like a lot of this comes up with the health reform law, where um, the kind of detethering of employment and insurance, there's a worry on the conservative side that's going to lead people to not work and some, you know, credible estimates from the Congressional Budget Office. And didn't that, Nancy Pelosi think this was going to lead us to all pursue our dreams as right. painters? Right. So, 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 right. Yeah. So, like, we could all be entrepreneurs. We could work at a startup called Vox.com, except they offer health this insurance. This is why Canada has such great indie rock bands. <laughs> Anyways, but um, I've been surprised at how small the effects, and some people argue if you reanalyze the data, and maybe you could talk about this, Dylan, yeah. that it actually seems much smaller than one would expect. And there's still this gravitation towards work, even if you have this basic income provision there. Yeah, people like working. So the, the main evidence base here are there were about four experiments in the U.S. and one experiment in Canada that were done on variations of a negative income tax, which is the, the Nixonian idea we were just discussing in the 70s. The U.S. experiments were not quite as good. Canada's experiment actually gave everyone in one town access to this, whereas the other ones just changed the welfare program. In, in the relevant area, like uh, some small sample of people in Gary, Indiana, got a negative income tax rather than regular welfare. Anyway, the conclusion of the American experiments was there was this pretty modest uh, reduction in work effort. People's hours went down. But the more you poke at that, the less convincing it seems that if it's based on survey responses. And if you compare it to actual administrative data on what people were earning. Survey versus administrative <laughs> data. Oh, man. This is like this a perpetual. Is the third episode <laughs> in a row. Such a hot topic right now. It's huge. On the weeds it's and huge. nowhere else. It's really in. Uh, administrative data all the way. There was, there was very little effect if you looked at it that way. And, and where there was an effect was stuff like people stayed in school longer. And in Canada, there was basically no effect for primary wage earners. There was an effect for mothers who had just had a kid. So people took maternity leave and fewer teenagers worked, which, I mean, maybe you want teenagers to work, but it doesn't seem like a socially catastrophic result. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that that's sort of what's interesting around these these things is that if you completely abstract away from life circumstances, it seems like we have a view in a society that people should have jobs. And when people say things like, this is going to kill jobs, everyone's like, oh, that's terrible. Like, we want more jobs. But when you delve into the specifics, I think it seems to really matter to people. If you hear, well, this is going to lead to more people in their late 60s chilling out and, you know, Skyping with their grandkids rather than working. People are like, oh, that's fine. They're old. They're, they're good. But then opinions differ about some of these other cases, right? So there's been a real decline in the United States and without a basic income, but there's been a real decline in the number of teenagers who have jobs in the summertime. And some people think that's really bad. It's evidence of like moral decay. Other people think it's good. It shows that teens are getting more involved in sort of educational and self-betterment kinds of things. We have an ambiguous 
view, right? We all agree that it's good for 12-year-olds to be in school rather than to be working. The further up you go on the age chain, different people's opinions start to mix. And then we have another view around parents of young kids and and particularly mothers uh, where some people would say – Increasing the labor force participation of mothers of young children is good. I mean, it definitely boosts GDP figures. On the other hand, there's a view that, well, if you're creating economic circumstances in which people have the opportunity to spend more time with their children rather than an economic need to be working at the target, that's beneficial. And it it gets very – there's less of a clear consensus in favor of work than there seems to be. And part of what makes basic income type idea interesting is that by being – untargeted. It sort of lays bare the fact that different people have different views about when it is and isn't good to decrease effort. Yeah. And I think the other the other aspect of it is that it, and because it hasn't been tried at a large scale, you haven't seen this empirically, but one thing you should expect it to do is increase wages. And right. so mm-hmm. people have some wage rate below which they're not going to work. If you had to choose between earning a dollar an hour and earning nothing an hour, you probably would choose nothing an hour. And this raises that level for people. And so you would you would expect it to, to boost wages. And so in the process, like people are not just making this choice based on I have this pool of money so I can afford to go and not work for a while. It's that like employers actually have to respond to that and, and they will respond by making it more attractive for you to work, which both counteracts some of the effects and people generally like raising wages. One of the more abstract things I like to think about here, this came up in a little bit in some of Dylan's writing, is like how the increasing automation and impending robot takeover will end up playing into this debate. I think it's a while off and like obviously Matt has some good writing on you know, how all of this will play off, but whether we see, you know, increasing automation, less opportunities to work at some point, strengthening the case for basic income. And basically this idea that like, you know, just like in Alaska, where the owners of the oil pay out this money to Alaskans and everyone has it, that the owners of our mega robot overlords will eventually possibly be paying out money to all these people who no longer have jobs. I don't find it super convincing because I then circle back to this idea that people like to do something with their time. I know I'd get super bored just sitting around with my dog all day, but maybe I would enjoy it after a while. No, you'd be watching but Netflix all day. We, I, we're really good at using that time. I so I think, I think one interesting possibility, right? I think the, the possibility that paints the most optimistic view of you have more and more automation. So you have sort of huge rents to the people who own, I don't know, they own the robot patents or they own the natural resources, you know, the dilithium crystals that power the robots. Um, so we then, we tax the rents and we give everybody money. The most optimistic view of it, I think, isn't that, well, people will cash the checks and watch Netflix. And it's not really that they'll go surfing. It's that they will work in unremunerative fields, right? So that you might have a lot of people who say would enjoy doing a little political punditry on the internet. And they're, you know, pretty good at it, but they're not necessarily up for the sort of daily grind of the hot takes and the aggregation to build up the traffic numbers that would make it worth paying you a really high salary. But they could just do it because they care, right? Or you could do experimental theater projects, or you could create hand-carved artisanal furniture, you know, and you would try to find something that you are passionate about, that you find some kind of customer base for, who appreciates the work that you are doing, and you're probably making some money off of it, but you're not primarily motivated to go find a job that maximizes your income because you know your sort of basic needs will be met. Now, I think the evidence that's available from people who fall into long-term unemployment suggests that what they actually do is watch a lot of television, not find a passion project to dedicate themselves to. So, you know, I'm, I'm torn between my, uh, my, my love of Star Trek and, and <laughs> uto- this vision of utopian socialism right. where people are going to be doing great things with their lives, you know, crafting the most amazing Wikipedia right. entries you've ever seen and the reality that they're probably going to be, be watching TV, which is, I mean, maybe it just means that people's real passion project in life is binge watching television, which is, I guess, okay, but in some ways uh, disappoints me. Yeah, I mean, binge watching TV is great. I mean, the the case for that other like utopian world has always struck me as sort of underspecified that if you look at like fields where people go into it, not for monetary compensation, but because they find it like 
incredibly personally fulfilling and where thus there's like a huge like surplus of labor, not enough jobs. It's stuff like academia. It's stuff like classical music, arts in general. I like the occasional experimental play. I don't know that it's like a gain for society for like a large group of people to go from being like lawyers to doing black box theater. Well, why not? I mean, it, I mean, it, but like, how many Etsy stores can you have, right? Like, it, this seems like the Etsyification of, and then you end up with like all these like terrible. There's an amazing website, Regretsy, that I never thought in a million years would come out with the weeds, but of like all these very regrettable Etsy stores. Like, is that like where? This leads us? Well, so I, I think the interesting case to look at it in this regard is is Iceland, actually, where they have the sort of generous Nordic welfare state. Not a basic income, but, you know, it's, it's pretty cozy. But it's also tiny, right? So there is no market that works financially for Icelandic language books because there's only 300,000 people who speak Icelandic. So, you know, if you if you sell a book to like 0.001% of people who speak English, you have a bestseller on your hands. You could sell a book to every single person in Iceland and it would be pretty successful, but like not real fame. But lots of Icelandic people do this stuff. They have this like an Icelandic soccer league where again the television ratings for it are laughable because the population of the whole country is like a small neighborhood of an American city. But people, they do this stuff in a not completely amateur way because there's small monetary transactions involved and every once in a while you get a Bjork or someone who becomes a a big international star. But people are sort of very involved in things in a market economy, but not really in order to go make money. And I think it's kind of nice. I mean, Dylan is, I think, probably going to push me on some real hedonistic utilitarianism (laughs) and like, why is it good for people to be having artistic and cultural achievements? instead of... I don't know. I like art and culture. Well, there you go. I mean, maybe people people could podcast, yeah. right? I mean, I... Yeah. I I guess you, you have to take a, a very different view of how we view maximizing the well-being of society than the one we do now to, to take these sort of claims seriously. You know? Like, you're not... The Icelandic book industry is not like an economic driver in Iceland, but it's making life better for Icelandic people because they speak this language that no one speaks, and now they have a literature that they can all enjoy. Yeah, or maybe um, it makes it worse. Maybe it keeps them stuck on their stupid language. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, my if we have Icelandic listeners, please, please email me. <laughs> I, you know, this is a podcast that's supposed to be delving into the weeds, but I feel like we're at risk of ascending too far into the air of completely airy metaphysical notions. So I think we should probably reboot, uh, get back into the weeds of some other issues after a, a word from a sponsor. We all remember taking physical education classes back when we were in school. Whether you love playing with parachutes or preferred kickball, phys ed is a great way for kids to get regular physical activity, which is associated with a healthier, longer life and a lower risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. Physically fit children also perform better academically. They exhibit better classroom behavior, and they have higher attendance rates. That's why the American Heart Association is urging Congress to save physical education. As lawmakers work to finalize the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, strong physical education policy should be a top priority. But some lawmakers want to do away with physical education altogether. Learn more and take action at heart.org slash let them play. All right. So right before we recorded this, uh, you know, just honestly, shockingly few hours, there was another Republican presidential debate in which we had candidates talking about this and that. I mean, it was really the most sort of debatey debate that I think we've seen yet, where we had some really sort of vociferous arguments between the candidates about things. And, And one that I thought was particularly interesting was on the issue of immigration, which we know is something that Republicans really disagree about. It's not a a nuanced difference of opinion. And we heard very strongly from John Kasich, and I think also pretty strongly from Jeb Bush, this argument that the hardliners are proposing an unrealistic plan, that they are saying we need to deport 11 million people. We heard strong arguments from, from Jeb Bush and especially from John Kasich saying that this idea of deporting all 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States is completely unrealistic. And I think, uh, you know, we can actually uh, give a listen to what Kasich said about this. But if people think that we are going to ship 11 million people who are law-abiding, who are in this country, and somehow pick them up at their house and ship them out of Mexico, 
to Mexico, think about the families, think about the children. So, you know, the answer really is, if they've been law-abiding, they pay a penalty, they get to stay, we protect the wall, anybody else comes over, they go back. But for the 11 million people, come on, folks, we all know you can't pick them up and ship them across, back across the border. It's a silly argument. It's not an... And I think it's a, it's a really good line, but I think an important trap to avoid in life is when people say something that supports the conclusion that you agree with to just sort of assume that their argument is correct. And, you know, what you have here is that the the more moderate Republican view on immigration is one that liberals all agree with. It's one that a lot of business people agree with. It's one that in the media is very, very broadly supported. And the kind of Ted Cruz, Donald Trump view is very derogated in elite circles. But I thought that while Trump and Cruz did not have a great answer to this point, I think that a few years back, Mitt Romney really did have a convincing reply. And the term he used was self-deportation, which I think a lot of people snickered at and didn't totally understand what he was saying. But Romney's point about that was you don't need to round up all 11 million people to get rid of them all. You just need to round up a a healthy slice of them every year and at the same time do other things in terms of making it harder to rent an apartment, making it harder to get a driver's license, making it harder to get a job. And if you make it not worth living in the United States between a kind of fear of deportation and a practical difficulty earning a living, people will just leave. And in one level, I think liberals know that this is correct. Because while you hear this thing about the unrealism of of mass deportations, another talking point you hear from people who favor immigration reform is that net illegal immigration to the United States has dropped to zero in recent years. And that's in fact true. But it's important to be clear about what it means that the word net is crucial to that because it's not that nobody is overstaying a visa or sneaking across the border. It's that an equal or greater number of people are leaving. And they were leaving because of a bad economic situation. They were leaving because for a while the Obama administration had really stepped up enforcement. And so it, it really does seem to me that if you wanted to have an immigration policy that was single-mindedly focused on hassling undocumented Americans, you could get, you know, not 100% of them, but a lot of people would would pick up and go. Yeah, I think it speaks to kind of the way it was handled at the debate kind of speaks to the difficulty the Republicans are having with this issue right now, where instead of saying, you know, oh, it's a bad idea, like coming out on the on the policy ground saying, you know, oh, it's a bad idea to try and deport these 11 million people instead, like talking about logistics and saying, well, like you could do that, but it'd be really impossible to run and like making it seem like this, like, like what is being proposed is literally rounding up this group of 11 people and putting them on a boat somewhere well, and, and sending right. them off. Like we and, have yeah. a law against stealing cars. Right. We haven't right. succeeded like, law, in right. stopping right. everyone from stopping but, cars. But like laws exist and we pass them because like generally they're mostly effective and like most cars do not get stolen. And I think it speaks a lot to the challenge like where someone like Kasich is where they're just talking about, well, it's just like logistically impossible. So let's not talk about that instead of, you know, in, Engaging and saying, you know, we don't want to ship off 11 million people. To, to speak in slight defense of Kasich and, and as someone who loves illegal immigration and wants them all to stay, <laughs> these proposals are usually paired with a call for a border wall. And one thing we do know about border walls and increased border fortification is that it really reduces the outward flow of immigrants mm-hmm. um, as much or more than it reduces the inward flow of immigrants. If Trump builds like the Great Wall of the North, 200 feet high on on the Mexican border, it's going to be a lot harder for the people whose lives he's immiserating through aggressive use of employment screening or denying them driver's licenses to actually like go back to Mexico or Central America. No, I mean, I want to be clear. I I don't think that Donald Trump has a sound and nuanced (laughs) understanding of immigration (laughs) policy. But I mean, it's just to say that I really do think that Mitt Romney did, that he had a version of this that was much less about this, like, we're going to build a fantastic wall and it's going to be amazing. And he had an agenda that I don't think it made economic sense and I don't think it made moral sense. And I think particularly when you bring those together, it would be odd to create a huge self-inflicted wound on the American economy in order to make Mexican people suffer. But it made logistical sense. He's a smart guy who's thoughtful about public policy and had a totally reasonable sort of idea. Donald Trump is, is not a thoughtful person about public policy. So he has a sort of silly version of this idea. But 
you know, to Sarah's point, it's just it's I think a problem for the Republicans who favor comprehensive immigration reform that they won't say why they favor it. They won't give real reasons. And you see the risk that Rick Perry wound up in, in not in this year's election campaign, but four years ago, when he sort of speaking from the heart said that it would be cruel and heartless to not let the children of undocumented immigrants go to college and that it would be pointless, that his view, which I think is the correct one, is that as long as the state of Texas is running these colleges and universities, they want smart people to attend them, to do the work, to graduate and keep living and contributing to society. So there would be no point in arbitrarily barring people from going there. But that that really sunk him because it meant that he wasn't just having a technical disagreement with people who hate immigrants more than he does. He was saying that people who hate immigrants are mm-hmm. bad people. And it got him into into a lot of trouble. So Kasich's trying to avoid that, but I just don't think it adds up. Well, and Kasich's version, I think, also plays into what is appealing about candidates like Jeb Bush or John Kasich to, like, GOP primary voters. That's not like we looked at this, this Donald Trump guy or this Ted Cruz guy and they just seemed really cruel. Like, that should be... If you think that, that should be clear sort of from the get-go. But, like, the the argument that actually has purchase is these guys don't understand how the government works. And they, like, just are making unrealistic promises that they can't meet. And, and like, Kasich's point is responsive to that, even if it's false, in a way that, that I think, like, Perry's was not. Right. It yeah. plays into something people are ready to believe, maybe, that Donald Trump is just not. Like, right. That he has grandiose ideas about walls and, like, mass deportations that cannot actually be accomplished by government. But I think it circles back to, like, it's like a bit of a cop-out in the debate, though. Obviously, I don't think Kasich's doing great in the polls. I wouldn't say it's, like, the strategy that's been... Fourth in New Hampshire, man. (laughs) Yes, he seems to be doing great in the Democratic primary. But it it seems like the strategy, it's not super paying off. It really does feel like this cop-out instead of saying, you know, here's why I want reform. You know, here's why I think that kids of illegal immigrants should be able to go to school in the way Rick Perry did. It's a cop-out of saying, yeah, actually, like, you know, logistically, we can't deport all of them, so we'll keep them here. But, well, I think where these these more moderate Republicans are are landing, you know, not just on immigration, but more generally, Jeb's whole slogan about Jeb can fix it. And Kasich had this thing about how, you know, what he's learned as governor of Ohio is that, like, a philosophy won't cure your Ebola or or whatever it was his special (laughs) problem was. It, It reminds me of the sort of difficulties that more moderate Democrats got themselves into years ago that Michael Dukakis tried to say in 1988, this election isn't about ideology, it's about competence. And there was a real sort of move, I think, both in Al Gore and John Kerry's campaigns to try to denude politics of any kind of moral vision and just say it was about these technical issues. And technical issues are important. That's why we have our our exciting Weeds podcast. But Politics really is about big ideas and and big principles, too. And you end up in a situation where you have politicians who just fear that the voters don't agree with their principles, so they don't want to articulate what those principles are. And like Jeb Bush will not say that these more conservative candidates are wrong about something, that there's something mistaken about the most extreme version of conservative ideology. Instead, he's very focused on this idea of some kind of practicality. And I mean, he, he had this ad that I wrote about where he's talking about his record in Florida, which he's very proud of, but he doesn't say anything about his record in Florida. It's just one after another talking head about how like Jeb would see a problem and he would tackle it and he would crush the special interests and make everything awesome. But they didn't explain Florida doesn't seem that awesome. Awesome. Right. I feel like I see a lot of this in the Obamacare replacement plans that I've been watching where there's like definitely obviously like repeal and replace is kind of the standard. I think everyone, you know, in the Republican primary supports repeal and replace Obamacare. But then you have these very you know, general principles like, you know, Fiorina was talking about last night, like, well, we don't want to go back to a world where a person's a pre-existing condition and we want innovation and these like very general principles about the things we want in our healthcare system. And then you actually... And they're liberalish principles. I, I don't know if they, they don't go as far as Obamacare. I don't think like anyone's as excited about universal coverage as liberals would be. But this idea that we should people should not 
die from an inability to pay medical bills seems to be pervasive on both sides. Carly Fiorina last night was talking about high-risk state-run medical plans. And so you'll get some specific details like that. There's a big picture of, you know, we don't want people to die because they can't pay their medical bills. And then like a lack of a, you know, there's like question marks and then profit. There's no way from point A to point B. And maybe they'll get fleshed out, like to give credit to some folks who have like released healthcare plans. Like there are a few specific ones floating out there, but the general view right now is like very a mushy sort of like between grand vision, like fix Florida, fix healthcare to like here are the tangible things that will happen. I mean, I think most of these plans are broadly driven by an idea that the government should be doing less to spend money making sure that people can get health care mm-hmm. if they are sick and if they are poor. But nobody quite wants to say that, right? Mm-hmm. There's a free market idea, obviously, in conservative politics, and there's an application of that idea to health care. But no one quite wants to draw the conclusions, right? Whereas, you know, we have like a strong consensus that if you don't have enough money to get like a nice smartphone, then you just you don't get a nice smartphone. Obama and, phones aside. Well, sure. We, we, <laughs> we, there are the Obama phones. Um, but, you know, like with, with health care, there's it's fuzzy because, you know, our actual delivery of quality health care to low-income people is very contentious. And obviously, Republicans don't like the big program we, we created to do that. But they also don't want to quite say in the opposite of the way that the moderate Republicans don't want to stand up for what's animating them on immigration. The more conservative Republicans don't really want to articulate the idea that Look, in a market society, some people are going to not have enough money to get the stuff that they might want to have. And, you know, that's too bad for them. Well, and it also keeps them from citing some of the more compelling, like, empirical cases against sort of expanded health care. So one thing that's striking to me is that no Republican candidates have cited the Oregon health studies <laughs> at all. That, the like, Oregon health studies totally <laughs> underplayed, man. T- totally underplayed. <laughs> But, but, I mean, if you yeah. look at, like, the, the studies, it's it's sort of compelling for opponents of Medicaid. You know, you had some gains on mental health, but you didn't have a, a lot of measurable gains on a lot of other uh, things for people in Oregon who were lotteried into Medicaid. There was a recent study by Amy Finkelstein at MIT that found that the, the benefit to people who got it was about 20 to 25 cents on the dollar. Suggests so that perhaps instead of Medicaid, they should have a basic income. Boom. Um, it all comes together. But, but like, you could imagine some, like, philosopher king Republican governor seeing that and saying, like, I'm going to cut Medicaid by 75 percent and just give it to poor people and their well-being will be unaffected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, they can't say that because it makes them sound heartless and cowardly. And because right. Ted Cruz specifically came out against philosopher kings. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> well, and you saw this a little bit from Carson, who initially was on the get rid of Medicare and Medicaid bandwagon and then backed off of that pretty quickly as he kind of, like, thought through seems like a lot of the politics of this. I would say, since we're in the weeds of health policy now, which is pretty much where I live, I think the balance of evidence is actually something I've been working on for a story for a little bit, does go in favor of health insurance improving health, which I think there definitely are the Oregon studies. um, You could cherry pick those. But I would just argue that, you know, a lot of the research on Massachusetts, a few other um, randomized trials do seem to suggest that improves health, although much less than one would expect. Well, and I think the point is is that if you go away from the world of practical politicians and if you just go to sort of wonky people arguing about policy, many conservatives cite studies Mm -hmm. showing that access to health insurance right. is not... And good not, studies, too. Like, yeah. These aren't, like, yeah, one-off. These are really respected researchers but, doing this work. Right. So this is a big argument that mm-hmm. people have, right, is are we really helping poor people very much when we give them health insurance? Or are we helping them not at all? Are we helping them just a tiny bit and small amounts of money? And it's there's a robust argument. But then in the political sphere, the kind of politicians who those writers are going to go vote for don't articulate these ideas. That's not a, a view that has sort of been put on the table of American politics. Nobody, I don't think I've ever heard a politician say, why don't we just scrap Medicare entirely and boost Social Security benefits or boost Social Security benefits by a tiny amount, right? Everyone is bought into the idea that, you know, people need need health care, even though we know, I mean, people who work in Washington know the issue, know that a lot of conservative policy people think that's wrong. Right. right. Yeah. The, and and uh, a lot of the, the ideas that are embraced by these candidates are designed 
to allow for those kinds of reforms sort of behind the scenes. So like Marco Rubio's big idea on welfare reform is that he wants all the money going to Medicaid and food stamps and everything to go to states in a flex fund that they can then use to fight poverty in any way you like. And one consequence of that is that governors, if they so choose, could just not give health insurance to poor people and instead provide money or use it to backstop like transportation spending in their state or whatever. And so it's been crafted by people in this wonky conversation to enable the kind of reforms that implicitly argue that health insurance just isn't that important. But you have to dress it up in a way that, that makes it look like it's about innovation and federalism and, and letting people experiment rather than forthrightly making the case that, like, no, we just need to spend less money on giving health care to poor people. So what I thought was the really interesting thing in the debate, though, not at all about health care, was Marco Rubio's scurrilous attack on studying philosophy in college um, since I did that and was once asked by my philosophy department to write a thing for students explaining why studying philosophy will not immiserate you over the course of your life. And Marco Rubio says that we should all we should all be bewilders instead. And that we, we need a lot more welders than we need philosophers. So I, I looked up, you know, average earnings. You can look at, you can compare welders to people who actually have jobs teaching philosophy, and philosophy beats welding. Or you can compare welders to people who just majored in philosophy and have gone on to other things like podcasts. Um, <laughs> and, and philosophy beats welding too. And it turns out that welding is like, just not really this utopian job at all, which I think is interesting because there was a Wall Street Journal article, I think a year ago, maybe more, but it was about like some welders making six-figure salaries and how no one can find welders. <laughs> and I've, on a, two different occasions, have been talking about some political issue and had a sort of irate middle-aged small business owner tell me that the real problem in the economy is they can't recruit enough welders. But then I asked him, I was like, well, how much do you pay welders? And it's like, it's not that much money. And and they have to work with these incredibly dangerous, you know, welding right. torches. So I feel like it's understandable that it's not a poverty wage, right? But it's like not a great, not a great job. Well, was it also, around like forty thousand? Was that right? I'm trying well, to so remember. It was a, it was a, the it was a median that. of about thirty-seven thousand, okay. and, and a mean of a little bit over forty thousand. So it's an okay job. Mm-hmm. It's not a great job by any means, and it's. Definitely worse than what people who attend proper conventional four-year colleges and graduate with liberal arts degrees get. Weirdly, I thought Marco Rubio's answer wasn't free markety enough in a certain way here. In that, when Henry Ford started like making auto factories, he didn't have like a group of workers who had the specialized skills you need to build a car, and so he just trained people in how to build cars. And so, one thing that like the welding industry could do, if they really have a shortage of welders and are willing to spend more money either in the form of wages or in like apprenticeship programs to like increase the supply of welders, is to do that. But there's this implicit assumption in all these debates that like no, we can't rely on private companies that actually need a set of skills to pay for the development of that set of skills for themselves. Um, and we like need this, these government interventions to, to spur those skills. Yeah, where's the welding interns? Exactly. <laughs> we don't have any welding interns at Vox, but we also have very low welding needs as a online internet website. <laughs> no, but right, it's true. If what we expected was for 22-year-old recent college graduates to be able to walk in the door and write great pieces with no further guidance and support from us, we'd be like, oh, my God, there's no qualified workers. <laughs> but I think the opinion is that's just an unrealistic expectation, right? I mean, we want to hire people with some skills and some knowledge and some smarts and some hustle, but like with an understanding that the more senior people are going to have to work with them on what we actually want them to do, right? That it's not the education system's job to like literally replace the work of managing our business. Also, you know, one of the things I I thought was like a little bit misleading about what Rubio said is there really are more welders than philosophy majors mm-hmm. at this point. Like the ranks like vastly seemed to outnumber them. I, I think I was looking at a graphic that we have up today. Yeah. I, I think one of the implicit assumptions in this is like everyone's gravitating towards these useless liberal arts majors. I don't think that data is actually there to suggest that's like, I, I think the data suggests that the real useless major that everyone is gravitating toward is business. 
if you talk to higher education people in, in D.C., like one of the most pervasive like utopian dreams they have is eliminating the business major because it's mm-hmm. something that people go to precisely because it doesn't seem like a liberal arts major. It seems like something practical and that will give you real skills, but that actually doesn't. Right. I mean, I think that would be the, the intelligent version of Rubio's criticism is to say that if you don't want to pursue a sciences or liberal arts degree, like the sort of traditional college degrees, right? If you look at it and you're like, you know what? I am just not going to spend four years of my life seriously trying to learn philosophy and write good papers and graduate. Then you might want to go into welding. That what you have had is this big growth of business and communications majors, which sound like they are training for practical jobs, but turns out to really not be that the earnings for people who go into those things are are not very good. The dropout rates are really high when they do standardized tests to try to show if people are learning anything in school. You know, people who major in history or people who major in physics, like they all learn something. People who major in business oftentimes are getting nothing out of it. Whereas welding, you know, it's not a great job, but it's a good job and it is a real job. And it is true that if you learn building trade skills, other things like that, right? If you know how to fix plumbing, you will be able to get a job as a plumber. Uh, Whereas if you go and study business for two and a half years and then drop out, you're going to have some student loans and and you'll be nowhere. But conservative people, for some, some good reasons as well as maybe not great ones, kind of don't like the sort of vibe of liberal arts academia. So they want to make that into a big public policy problem as opposed to just a thing that they find annoying. And it, it like it really doesn't add up. I mean, I find it annoying, too. <laughs> but I guess I guess that's a question. for. We're Roger. all biased. I think all three of us in some sense did philosophy in college. Yes. Yeah. I had a weird major, philosophy, neuroscience, psychology. Oh, yeah. What we called mind, brain, and behavior. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. Well, so, yeah. So, I mean, philosophy is right. obviously a great course of study if you want to get into policy it, podcasting yes. down the line, right? So that's uh, that's going to be could be my advice to everyone. And you know, you take that to heart. And we're gonna we're gonna discuss our paper of the week after another sponsor word. This episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Esquire Network's new series, Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Spotless tells the story of a troubled man whose tidy life is turned upside down when his outlaw brother crash lands into his world, forcing dark secrets of the past into the light and getting both of them fatally involved in organized crime. Played out against a backdrop of Jean's niche crime scene cleaning business with gangsters, corruption, drugs, and death a constant hazard, Jean, Martin, and their dysfunctional family struggle to gain control over life, business, and their shared destiny. No one gets away clean. Find out what happens when the mob needs a little help cleaning up. Spotless premieres November 14th at 10 p.m., 9 p.m. Central on Esquire Network. So today's white paper of the week is also about higher education. It comes to us from the National Bureau of Economic Research. As um, it so often does. Live every day like it's NBER day, as we like to say at the weeds. And it was kind of interesting. So there was a professor at a university who thought a lot of his students were cheating. And like any good university professor, he decided what he should do is run an academic study to figure out if this was the case. And they found some interesting results. They estimated that about 10% of the students in that class had cheated on the exam. And the way that they knew this was looking at people who were sitting next to each other, how likely it was if you were sitting next to someone that you got the same inaccurate answer than they did. And they found that kids who sat next to each other, some of them were twice as likely to get the same inaccurate answer as their seatmate as they would by chance, suggesting that there was pretty rampant copying and cheating and, you know, people looking at each other's tests going on um, in this classroom. Part of what's interesting about this paper is just that it found very high rates of um, cheating. We we don't know which university it was. We know it's somewhat of a well-known but unnamed university, and it was a natural sciences course where this was happening. The other interesting part is, you know, so they find this high rate of cheating, and the professor says, you know, he's going to do something about this, that he's going to, you know, prosecute this in some way. But they get so many complaints that it just gets dropped and nothing happens. The kids get their grades. Presumably they go on winter break or summer vacation or whatever. And it is interesting to me in two ways of one that it suggests, you know, this pretty significant rate of cheating happening in classrooms and the significant limitations to do anything about it that they were able to develop an algorithm that found cheating. But it was kind of like all for naught because it felt so impossible 
to do anything because of the backlash that ensued from parents. Um, And that sort of connects to the whole question of grade inflation and mm -hmm. the sort of College education in the United States has a lot of public financing, but it's basically privatized in terms of who goes where and and how are the schools run. So schools really are trying to attract customers, right? You want to be a school that a lot of people want to go to. And one thing that people want from colleges is for the college to give them good grades and apparently for the college to not punish people for cheating. It's, I guess, interesting that as consumers, we do not seek out rigorous education with with high standards, but it it seems like we don't, right? And that's a question that sort of pops up again and again with these sort of pedagogical issues around higher education. It's like, it feels like it would be better for the schools to be more demanding of people, grading them more strictly, punishing people if they cheat on tests, things like that. But in practice, people sort of vote with their feet for, you know, a gentlemen's B+. Well, and, and the people here are often not even the students, it's the parents. So you can kind of see, you know, you have this buyer from outside of the university who the thing they presumably want out of this expensive educational experience they're buying their child is for them to get good grades and get a job afterwards. I mean, maybe maybe they're also thinking about the rigor and like the ethical values of not cheating. But it seems to me one thing a lot of parents probably want out of spending money on education is employment for their child afterwards. And higher grades seem like the easiest path to that versus good ethical skills. So important weeds real talk moment. I mean, have, have either of you, did you cheat on tests in college? No. Believe it or not, there were major cheating scandals with both my class in college and my class in high school. Were you involved in that? Uh, no. Are you sure? <laughs> that was a pause before your no, Dylan. Eight people were indicted for breaking into my high school and stealing tests. But, but I, I think like actually... Wait, you didn't answer the question, Matt. Huh? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But, you know, it did remind me that one thing that I always sort of have reflected on since I've been in the working world is why is it that when I was in college, I and other people who I was in college with thought it was important what grades we got? I have never in my life as a working person been asked what grade I got in different college classes. And I have also never asked a potential employee what grades they got. It seems like, as you were saying, Sarah, that parents and students' concerns about this is very tightly linked to employment questions, Mm -hmm. but this is also completely irrelevant. But is it possible it's just the industry we're in? Like, I look at my brother who has gone to grad school, and there I I've never applied to grad school. I don't think any of us have gone to grad school. But it seems like there is some relevance if you are going into other fields or, like, consulting with recruiting this, like, massive class of people. Like I said, I do recruiting at Vox. I've never looked at A1's GPA. But I think there are – my understanding is there are industries where they matter. But it does bias what industry people go into. Um, we, we were discussing this in the office the other day as, as regards sort of getting people into STEM that I think like a real reason that people don't major in STEM fields is that like for whatever reason they just grade tougher either because like they're just harder or, or because the median student is less prepared for them than they are for uh, English or philosophy or business or communications. But as a consequence, a lot of people will take these classes, be like, crap, the same amount of effort gets me a D here that would get me an A in these other classes, decide that grades are important to them irrationally or not, and then like flock into these other fields. And when we're talking about GPAs, I think like the people we, we get applications from are generally like B range or above. Like maybe you would be skeptical if someone applied with like a 2.1 GPA. But, I mean, I wouldn't even know. Something I should say as a proviso, because I know real higher education wonks get annoyed by this, is that most people go to non-selective universities, and most media people go to relatively fancy universities, and we tend to speak about the experiences on the kinds of campuses that we went to and the kinds of places that people who we work with went to. Mm -hmm. And we are going to continue doing that here, I think, because... Whatever. And it's what our, our paper is at one of these This, this is what the paper is about. This so is this what we actually know of. something about yes. and have something relevant right. that we can say. But, about. but I, think, I think there's some spots. applicability. And yes. I, I do think it matters because I do think there is downward filtering, right? Because yeah. there's a, a hierarchical pyramid in higher education. And what happens at the elite campuses sets the sort of ideal toward which everyone is working. And I think that the dynamic Dylan pointed to is a real 
pathology. When I was thinking about what elective courses to take, one thing I did was I, I took a number of courses on French history. And I did that in part because I think it's interesting, but it in part because my first French history class, I got a really good grade in without working that hard. And so I sort of kept doing it. And I, and I learned a lot about the history of France, and, and I value that, and, and I like it. But in the years I've been out of college, I have continued to read history books or listen to history podcasts or do other things to learn about history. And I find it to be a relatively easy kind of thing to do. When I decided I wanted to know more about England in the 17th century, I picked up the well-regarded academic books about it, and I just read them, right? Whereas classes that I shied away from in college, like learning how to do multivariate calculus, learning how to do more advanced statistics, I didn't want to do that because I knew that even if I worked pretty hard, I wasn't going to get A's in those kind of classes. But what I've now found is that every time I've thought to myself, oh, you know, maybe I should check out this online course about multivariate calculus. Maybe I should ask my wife who, who went to MIT and knows this stuff to explain it to me. It's like nothing. I can't, yeah. I can't make any headway in that. And I could have actually really used the structure and discipline of a formal education environment, and I would have come out like net-net, knowing way more stuff today. And it's true that I got better grades by shifting myself into the easy classes, but those good grades have never helped me. Right. Nobody nobody asks about my GPA. And if I was looking at someone and I was comparing two students who both went to selective school, and I saw one person had straight A's with a mishmash of like random humanities classes, and another person had B pluses doing a lot of like math, physics, chemistry, stuff like that. I'm not an idiot. Like, I know those are harder classes, yeah. right? Like, it's like people are operating in this world in which the systems are much dumber than the real ones are. And it's hard to unlearn. Like, I've taken a couple Coursera programming courses, and it took me a few times to get through the first one. And, and one time I was, like, falling behind on homework. And I was very tempted to go and cheat because, like, it's an online course. Like, people post the answers everywhere. And there was, like, some moment where I just, like, stopped in the cafe I was working in. And I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, it's not like Ezra's going to fire me if I get, like, a B in this class. I'm, like, I'm doing this so I can learn something. But you you still bring that kind of attitude and that kind of sort of fetishization of, of grades. Right. It's like even if we would grade resumes on a curve, there's, like – this desire to get the best one. And it just feels a lot better to get like the A for, even if it's like right. this course you're taking for, for not like credit. For self-enrichment. Right. Uh, but you know, here, here's my, my dark suspicion about the cheating because you mentioned recruiting, you know, like the big <laughs> recruiting done by the consultants and the investment bankers and stuff. And maybe they care about GPAs more. And I kind of think that those people want cheaters. <laughs> I never cheated on an exam, but certainly something that I did and will we'll happily confess to, and, and I bet, you know, at least one of you is also guilty of, is coming to discussion session to talk about a book when I hadn't really read the book. Oh, yeah. Yes. Most discussion sections. Right. I usually did the reading. I was pretty straight-laced. <laughs> so, I mean, I did some reading, right? But if I think back on it, I would say that pretending to have read a book that you have only read a little bit about, plus reading the introduction and conclusion, is a real job skill in my line of work. <laughs> Absolutely. It's also a real social skill. <laughs> right, exactly. And so that a school that got more effective at preventing people from bullshitting their way through discussions of famous books would be in some ways doing a disservice to its students. And in the business world, if you find rules that you can break and make money by breaking them and evade detection, that's like a good skill to have, right? Yeah. No, that, that seems right. And, and also, <laughs> I mean, a lot of these jobs involve writing on a deadline that you kind of have to bullshit based on, on sources that you know about. But if you're a consultant, your whole job is going into companies that you didn't know anything about before landing there and deciding how to fix them after a few weeks stranded there. And so, like, yeah, some bullshitting skills are... So I'll, I'll push back on this <laughs> a little bit. Perhaps right. it is true. But it also seems like if you're, like, Deloitte or Bain or, like, whatever consulting firm, it seems very high risk to, like, recruit this population of cheaters 
and liars who could like really mess up your business with like these clients that you are working with. Like if they are copying things they've done for other companies and your client finds out or like... Well, they definitely yeah. do that. Right. So, I mean, I think my understanding is that one big part of the consulting business model really, is that you hire the consultants specifically so that they will under the table spill trade secrets that they learn from their consulting with your competitors. Right. Right. And so you want people who are, you know, immoral, <laughs> rapacious, right? And if you look at all the different kinds of violations that you see in the in the banking industry, right? I mean, it's clear that they are not trying to recruit people into these trading desks based on their, their high moral standards, and that it would be undesirable to actually have a bunch of employees who are like, well, let's not do that. That would be taking advantage of people's ignorance in a wrong way, right? Like, that's not business. gets you into some, like, major fuck-ups as well. I guess you have to be willing to, like, accept that as the trade-off of having an immoral workforce. Yeah, I mean, every once in a while, you get hit with a, a billion-dollar fine here or there, but sure. I do think it's an interesting question, right? I mean, is there some kind of fix for this? I mean, the more different schools get lenient on cheating, the the harder it is for anybody else to sort of break the pattern, right? And is there something that could be done to create a dynamic where, you know, schools are actually supposed to be assessing people's work in some kind of realistic way? I mean, I think a lot of it, and our education writer, Libby Nelson, writes really great stuff on this. It's a lot about the relation, like what role colleges play right now. And her thesis that she's like been through in a lot of different stories is like there's this very big tension of are they basically a parental role? Are they just like this transactional thing that you pay for a degree? And it seems like this suggests to me that it's much more this like consumer demand driving what is happening. I don't know exactly. And you see that like in, you know, campuses like building up like whatever amenities they have with their like fantastic dorms or like water slides or whatnot. And like great grades are like another one of those amenities that they're selling. And I'm a little pessimistic about this changing unless, you know, you had this consortium, you know, of everyone getting together and saying like, okay, cheating is not acceptable. I don't know. It like creates this huge market disadvantage if you're a university and like you're not selling good grades like along with your nice dorms and like your great facilities. It actually makes me wonder why you don't see more selective schools going to just a sort of a pass-fail model, though, yeah. which seems like it would meet most of what consumers want without sort of making professors complicit in a kind of weird sort of turning of a blind eye. Mm-hmm. And also, to me, actually aligns more with a sort of idea of what mm-hmm. an employer might be interested in. I mean, you know, a, a lot of classes of people taking college philosophy classes, for example, I mean, it's it's a little hard to say how you would assess it. But, you know, if somebody was saying, well, okay, I took, you know, statistics, why or whatever. What I would want to know is, does the person know how to do yeah. the stuff or do they not? These like fine gradations, like what is that even supposed to mean? Well, the funny thing is that like one place where this has been like a trend in Academia is in law schools. So Yale was was first out the gate and has a pure pass-fail system. And then it became cool and other law schools uh, tried to adopt it. But what happened was at Harvard and, and Berkeley now, they have pass-fail, but they also have high-pass. And they also have low-pass. <laughs> and they also have high-pass plus. <laughs> and so, like, uh, the, the, the incentives to just rename the letter grades are, are surprisingly strong. That's fascinating. So do we think there's now people cheating to try to get high-pass plus? Of oh, course. absolutely. That's I think it's like the people they, you know, it attracts are used to getting straight A's in high school. Like, I think it's something their consumers wouldn't be satisfied with the pass-fail. Like, they want, like... High pass plus plus plus. Like they want to be known as like not part of the half that passed. They want to be like among the like five percent that like did the best pass. So I don't actually think pass fail would attract the type of people who are gravitating towards these schools and want to be like called out as special snowflakes because like they are very, very smart and they are not just a pass. But, but interestingly, in medical schools, like pass fail has been much more robust and much more hmm. yeah. uh actually pass fail, which I think speaks to you either learn to be a doctor or you don't. Um, There's a lot more technical skills. Right. I think you can assess like, you know, you did the surgery right or you didn't. Right. And law school is almost famously unconnected to the task of being a lawyer. Well, so, but that it does, I think, go back to my question. Like, I I don't know. I've obviously never hired a, a lawyer at a law firm. But I mean, how much stock would any reasonable hiring manager put in these kinds of grades? 
I would never think to ask, and I would think it would be odd, frankly, if a job applicant was coming and like telling me about their A minuses and stuff like that. Like, who who cares? Like, I would ask them to do something, right. write something down, rev- show me some right. things you've done in the I past. I recently reviewed about 150 intern applications. Where is the space where you think GPAs would be most relevant because they don't really have yeah. work experience? I did not. Maybe some of them had GPAs on the resume. I did not look at a single GPA. I asked the finalists for writing tests because I wanted to know, like, can you write a story? I right. don't care as much about, you know, can you get an A in a class? Because what would it mean, right? right. You don't know the micro details of where these people went to school. So that's, to me, what just seems really fundamentally strange about this is, like, people are there and they think they're beating the system by, like, taking these gut classes or by having their parents whine to the professor and get their cheating revoked or by doing the cheating in the first place. But everyone in the workplace is aware of this. We all have been to college. We know people who've been to college. We know that like an A in one class could be a B in another class. We know that different schools grade differently. One of the worst grades I, I ever got was in my American public policy class. And that has not deterred me from, from mouthing off regularly. And I think, frankly, I know a lot more about American public policy than I do about French history, notwithstanding what my transcript says. And I don't think anyone finds that to be remotely surprising. It just happens to be that my public policy class was graded by a kind of old school, hard ass professor, and also that that semester the president of the university was making a big stink about grade inflation. So I got a bad grade in it. But like, who cares? Literally, nobody cares about this. It which makes it a strange paper to me is it seems like a problem that there's not an obvious solution to, but it's also not obvious that there's really a problem. And yet, it feels really bad, right, to have everybody cheating all the time. I think that's fair. Yeah. So with that. Thanks for listening. It's been another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Thanks to Dylan and to Sarah, uh, to our producers uh, for being here. Um, you can email us at weeds at vox.com. And if you enjoy the show, please uh, check us out on iTunes. Give us a review. Give us uh, many, many stars. Uh, we are not above cheating. <laughs> you know, because cheating in iTunes reviews, unlike cheating in college classes, really does get you someplace. So if you take one thing away from this episode, that's what I would like. We'll complain to iTunes if we don't have enough ratings. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 